So our teaching text for today comes from John 18, verses 28 and 29. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to bring them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? You're here. You made it. If I had a trophy to give you for making it uh, and setting that clock forward, I would give it to you, but I don't have one. I do have a number for you this morning, though, and that's 35,000. 35,000. Can anyone guess what this is? It is not the number of clocks you'll need to set forward in your car, in your house. It is the number, the average number, scientists think, of decisions that we have to make as adults on an everyday basis. 35,000 decisions. 35,000 choices. And let's practice this because you've already made a few decisions. You made the decision to come here, right? If you're watching online, you made the decision to open up your laptop or turn on your TV and tune in this morning. You maybe made the decision to brush your teeth or shower. Maybe. We'll, we'll tell you later. Um, you maybe made the decision to bring coffee with you so that you might stay awake uh, when I'm preaching, right? Um, but here's, here's a few decisions we might make. Let's say, for example, you're thinking about dinner tonight and what you're gonna make, and it's pizza or tacos, right? Pizza or tacos. Who's coming tacos with me? Taco Tuesday all day, every day. Taco Tuesday on Sunday, okay? Okay. What about you have a family member that you need to connect with? Are you sending a text message or are you making a phone call? That's the right answer. Depends on the family member, right? If you know it's going to be a 30-minute conversation, I'm sorry, I'm sending you a text, okay? Uh, spring break. Let's say you can pick somewhere you want to go with your entire family or a group of friends. Are you going to the beach or the mountains? Who's coming to me with beach? Who's coming with me to the beach? Okay, right. And the list continues, right? Do we stop at the light or speed through it? Do we fly or do we drive? Honey, should I nap or watch an episode of my show? And then the decision becomes, well, which show? Some of us decided a few minutes ago to reach out to a few people while passing the piece we had to decide who to text or to call. Others made an in-the-moment choice to stay home today because it's just the best decision that you can make for your kids. Some of you are stuck back at pizza and tacos, and you're already thinking about lunch at 10.28 a.m. But then there's some choices that we make out of these 35,000 choices that we might make a day that aren't as easy. Last Wednesday, March 10th, marked a year since the first COVID cases were identified here in Michigan. 10 days later, social distancing, a term that just a few weeks before I had never heard, seemed to be in every sentence, as was the word unprecedented, right? 
full effect overnight. And overnight, the decisions that we had to make changed drastically. Over last summer, some families had to choose between homeschooling, somehow making e-learning work, or choosing to send your kids to school in person. We needed to decide how to celebrate birthdays differently and keep in touch with loved ones and even watched YouTube videos on how to sanitize our groceries in a 10-minute process. Some didn't have a choice at all, church. Businesses closed. Jobs and homes were lost. Some of you in this room or watching online had to choose how to set healthy boundaries and relationships with people you care about. And even beyond personal choices, we've also witnessed intense corporate divisions that have, over time, created these little check boxes by which we've identified our moral compasses and within which we've categorized others. And we keep referencing these boxes to help us guide our decisions and our judgments, throw in navigating decisions we haven't had to make before. In church, we have a steaming bowl, one year later, of decision fatigue. A state of low willpower that results from having invested effort into making choices as defined by a psychology professor named Roy Baumeister, who coined the term in 2010. He says this, it leads to putting less effort into making further choices, so either choices are avoided. Some of us in this room have avoided making certain choices just because we're tired of having to make decisions or they're made in a very superficial way, where maybe we don't take in as much information as we once used to. Maybe we don't contact as many friends or mentors or people we trust to help make decisions with us just because we're tired of having to make decisions. There's an article from this past August in 2020 that went into more detail about decision fatigue. And it continued, especially in highly emotional times, people who tend to suppress their emotions may be more prone to experience decision fatigue. But what happens when there's a lot on the line? And good decisions need to be made in our personal lives, in our state, in our nation and in the church, like decisions between division and unity, between perseverance and giving up. Just recently, I learned that mental health therapists are so tired. Troy, it's not just the two of us. Mental health therapists are so tired because over the past year, they've been carrying the burdens willingly of other people. Just recently, I talked to a teacher who admitted to me, just a couple days ago, Ashley, I don't know if I can make it from spring break to the end of the school year. Teachers are tired. In the last couple of weeks, other pastors outside of our gathering body, other pastors I've talked to either personally or who have referenced some of their friends in ministry, they're on the edge of giving up. They're so tired. Between facing the truth 
This is another decision we have to make between facing the truth about our past or sweeping it under the rug again, about making the call to get help or self-medicating to make the pain go away. And in the case of where we find ourselves in John's text today, what about when the stakes are so high that the decision is between literal life or death? Church, one year later, how do we make good, godly, kingdom-oriented choices when it seems the collective rage, trauma, weariness, and psychological impact of the past year are still present, and in some case, they're just catching up to us. So we come to this point in Jesus' journey to the cross, and there's so much tucked within these last few verses of John 18. We could dissect every aspect of dialogue between the Jewish leaders and Pilate, between Pilate and Jesus, but as I read this passage with you over the past few weeks, as I read this passage with us in mind, what struck me was that there were three moments when some high-stake choices had to be made. And I've never noticed this before in this part of the text, and it really stuck out to me because I, I really do believe that each choice made within these verses of text all the way to verse 40 uniquely points not just to a subsequent action, a decision that was made to act, but to what I believe was a deeply embedded desire within the characters we encounter in the text. And here's what I think the trial of Jesus tells us, Mars Hill. While the earthly authorities were deciding whether and how to condemn Jesus, Jesus, even as a prisoner of the government, he was judging the hearts, the souls, the minds, the intentions, the choices of the people that were around him. He was revealing something about himself as an answer to a deeper longing that's present within these people who are surrounding him in this trial. Who he was intersected their desires, even as their desires were to rid themselves of him. And I believe through this text, Jesus has much to reveal to us today in 2021 on what it means to, as we're barely making our way forward in some cases, as the church that longs to have positive kingdom impact in a world where choices are endless and the way of Jesus in many ways being cross-examined as we speak, I believe Jesus has something to say to us about what it means to intersect choice, desire, and kingdom impact that glorifies the Father. So there's this first choice and there was a choice of conviction. Right out of the gate in verse 28, at this portion of the text, John gives us an interesting detail about the Jewish leaders who took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate. And he says this, Brian read it for us already, to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Say what we want about the Jewish leaders. They knew their stuff. 
They were committed to rituals and customs. So there was a dilemma in bringing Jesus to Pilate. Pilate was a Gentile. And they knew that to enter the house of a Gentile could uh, defile, could cause ritual uncleanness for seven days, which would have prevented them from partaking in a feast so important to their custom, so important to their history, their culture, their deeply embedded belief. And so being sold out to that conviction, the Jewish leaders made the choice not to go inside and be proximate to Pilate or to Jesus so they'd be sure to be found worthy of the Passover feast. This is a choice that they were making. So even beyond wanting Jesus to be tried and found accused, there's also this conviction that they hold, and yet listen closely, Marcel. Their personal, devout, religious conviction didn't keep them from falsely accusing an innocent man. Their deeply held religious conviction, their desire to walk out the way of their history and their law did not keep them from falsely accusing a man who was innocent and turning him over to Pilate. Church, in a world where public and performative advocacy is rewarded. Where perhaps some of our unpopular opinions are applauded in forms with others who feel the way you do. Where using our voices is encouraged, where cancel culture is the new courtroom. May we not forget that our convictions alone are not enough to be a Jesus people for the sake of the world. The choices and disciplines we choose to walk out because of those convictions, yes, they might follow the book. Yes, they might be in line with deeply held and honored tradition or even what we were taught growing up. But it's like when Dylan and I tell our kids in the mornings, hey, you have some priorities that you need to attend to before you go to school. Before you can tap into your precious minutes of screen time, mom, You've got to get dressed. You've got to eat your breakfast. And you've got to make sure that your backpack is packed and at the front door and ready to go. And yet, even if they do all of those things, church, even if they follow every single one of those prerequisites and priorities to a T, the fact of the matter is, if they are going to grow and transform in community with their friends and their teachers, we still have to walk out the door and make it the nine and a half minutes to their school. Are you with me? The conviction and the priority isn't enough. There must be a walking out of those convictions that is toward transformation. And this is what the religious leaders, this is what they missed. It's so interesting to me that while the Jewish leaders were outside the palace, here's what Jesus' relationship to that decision uh, looks like. Jesus, at some point, entered the place where they chose not to go. At some point, Jesus enters the unclean place where these religious leaders chose not to go. Our high priest, the one who is without blemish, he entered an unclean Gentile's home. And yes, haven't we seen this before? He's eaten with tax collectors. 
He's traveled to Samaria to talk with a woman at a well. He's touched and been proximate to those who were the untouchables of their society. The irony is that the Jewish leaders wanted to be clean to celebrate the Passover, and yet their religious conviction somehow left room for them to miss and mistreat the Lamb of God. Our conviction alone isn't enough. If you've been paying attention to what's going on in popular culture, it's been interesting to read this text and then see what's going on with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry and Oprah. Because every now and again, it's like, what's Oprah up to? It's been interesting to tap into, like, what's going on in the church? The wrestling, the tension with some church leaders who are making big decisions about what it means to walk and shepherd in the church. But as I'm paying attention to that, I'm realizing that my own convictions, mine, not anyone else's that I'm seeing externally, but mine, must compel me to go where Jesus is and to make choices that put me proximate to where his spirit is leading me to be. And sometimes that might mean separation from custom. Sometimes that might mean separation from tradition. Maybe I'll have to go where the generation before me has not. For me personally, I started seeing a therapist in 2012. And I'll tell you what, before I realized that that was actually an integral part of my healing in a way that God was wanting to use healing through the spirit in my story in relationship with this therapist, I'd never seen that done before. I had to choose to step into a place that was unknown, that the generation before me hadn't necessarily talked about, to no fault of their own, but sometimes stepping forward and making a choice to follow where Jesus is means we have to leave something known behind. For some of us, that's a discipline in this season that I think we're now starting to talk about a little bit more, and that's the discipline of confession. A shameless plug for our dear brother, Tim Nelson, who started an amazing podcast called the Seasonal Practices Podcast. This last one was really interesting to me because he and Kate had this guest who were talking about the power of confession in the season of Lent. And I'll be honest with you, there'd never really been a highlight of that discipline for me in my church formation growing up. That is something that I am still learning, but that's giving me the choice to leave something that I knew was comfortable behind and step into deeper life with where Jesus is. So the first question I have for us this morning isn't just what choices are you making as a result of your conviction, but where exactly is Jesus calling you to be proximate to where he is? to where the Spirit is leading. Because I think we'd all agree, stating the conviction, displaying the conviction might be one thing, but actually following Jesus there is completely a different thing. So the first was a choice of conviction. The second, I call it one made out of confusion. 
So we move from outside Pilate's palace. By the way, if you notice, there's a lot of outside, inside. There's a theme of Pilate was outside and then inside with Jesus. Then he went back outside again. And even into chapter 19, we see that theme continue on in these different acts, almost like a, a story or a play. So we move from outside Pilate's palace to inside where we witness this interesting back and forth. The series of questions, not just from Pilate, directed toward Jesus. But I think pretty boldly, from Jesus back to Pilate, just listen to these, these lines of questioning. Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus asks, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Pilate asks, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus states this, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate declares. Jesus says, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate, some scholars say he asks this with intrigue and interest, and he might ask it like this, what is truth? But a majority of scholars, in the way that it's even laid out in our shed Bibles, it says he retorts, or there's a sharp edge to it, almost like, what is truth? And don't some of us find ourselves here, church, even today, where the questions are swirling, where we or people we know have actually left the gathering body because questions like the ones Pilate had for Jesus couldn't be answered to their satisfaction. They're trying to figure out, are you a king, Jesus? Are you a king? What is your kingdom like? See, what's interesting here is we see Jesus refusing Pilate's terms of reference, which was actually very bold, because he is a king, but not in the way that Pilate understands it. Had Jesus said, yes, I align myself with what you consider to be earthly kingship, that would have been a huge problem, because in this time, there was no other king but whom? Caesar. But Jesus also doesn't deny that he is, in fact, a king. He says, my kingdom is different from what you understand it to be. I'm not playing by your terms. I'm not operating within the checkboxes that you've laid out, Pilate. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you who I am. But I'm trying to get you to see my kingdom is different from what you understand it to be. I'm not going to play into your definitions. I'm going to play by my terms. So even as a prisoner, Jesus is exerting his authority as the king of kings. He said, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. In contrast to the Jewish leaders, Jesus is making a very clear distinction here. Truth about the reality of God then wasn't subjective. It wasn't founded within oneself. Jesus' relationship with Pilate's questions was that he was judging the heart, mind, and soul of the judge who was judging him. 
And even he's extending an invitation. He doesn't say just some people, just some people on the side of truth, listen to, listen to me. He says, everyone, everyone. And Pilate is clearly hearing him. But my question is, even though that they're talking, Pilate might be hearing Jesus, but is Pilate listening to Jesus? Do we see that distinction? Pilate is hearing Jesus, but the invitation is there. Is Pilate listening to Jesus? We see at that point, something really interesting happens. Pilate had to make a choice. Was he going to listen to the Jewish leaders who said this man has clearly done something wrong? Or was he going to listen to Jesus? Simple question, church. Who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Is it Jesus or is it that one podcast that you really love? Is it Jesus or is that Instagram influencer? Is it Jesus or is it that news station? Jesus, the word of God, or is it something else? See, I think Pilate's a little flustered here. He's trying to decide what is truth. And he doesn't even stick around to hear Jesus answer the question. He just leaves and goes back outside the palace. And for whatever reason, that's widely debated, because he doesn't stick around. Perhaps he was just really confused, like many of us are in this day. We're asking the same question Pilate was asking. What is truth? Pilate's choice was this, even though he had the power to save or the power to condemn Jesus to death, within whose hands does he place that decision? He takes that decision and he puts it back on the Jews with all the passion and conviction. He says, you, you make the decision. I'm handing him back over to you. So then in the final part of chapter 18, we see a sense of conviction where a choice is made, a sense of confusion around what is truth and the decision that needs to be made there. And then the final decision is, is this real or counterfeit? Is it real or counterfeit? John 18, 39. Pilate says to the gathering Jewish leaders and the crowd, but it is your custom. It is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Now, how would this crowd have reacted? They already think he's making false claims. This angers them. They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. There's not much external reference we have about this custom, but Pilate chooses not to exercise his full authority. Rather, he chances it, thinking the Jews will surely choose Jesus. Because do we know what Barabbas has done? 
This man, Barabbas, who is described in Matthew 27 as a notorious prisoner, in Mark 17 as in prison with insurrectionists who'd committed murder, he was the one who the crowds chose to release. He was the one who had the stature, the build, the bravado of a king who would somehow lead the Jewish people against the Roman rule. He was somehow their guy. He was built the part. They chose Barabbas because they thought he was their guy. In Dale Bruner's work, he cites another author who says this, the world had its choice between the real king and the bandit chief, real or counterfeit. And they chose to hand over the real king The real son of the father, Jesus, was handed over and the bandit Barabbas, or if you know what his name means, Bar-Abbas, son of the father, is how his name translates. He went free. The real king was handed over to die, and Barabbas, the one they thought would lead them, the one they thought was the stature, the build, had the brains, the wits, the bravery, the courage, they released him instead. Church, there are many issues that we can hold convictions around. There are many sources we might choose to access. And there's also a sense of counterfeit choice that we have to be careful to make. There are counterfeits in our world, our nation, and yes, the church, that might be present as viable options to what we deem as worthy, as we deem as able. But will we choose them over and against the real king of the world based on its definition of kingdom? We must know what Jesus' kingdom looks like. Recently, um, I attended a conference online, and Francis Chan, many of us know him, he um, has this desire to go to parts of the world where the gospel has not yet been preached. So his goal was to move full-time over to Asia, and after this conference was over, he said, would you please pray for our brothers and sisters in Myanmar? So in praying for Myanmar, um, I learned of this news story Um, You see, there's a lot happening over in Myanmar, and this uh, nun, Sister Anna Rosa Nutong, she got into the mix. And there were choices that people were making. There were people who were wanting democracy to be available to them, and they were protesting against the government, wanting so badly for democracy to be realized. And then there were police officers countering the protesters, spreading tear gas into uh, the crowds, shooting people dead in the streets. And this kind of sounds like a narrative that we know well. And the temptation might be to say, well, choose one. Whose side are you on? Pick a box. Make a choice. And it might be a little bit more difficult than pizza or tacos. 
But sister, sister Anna, she didn't give in to the boxes that the world had created around her. Following the way of Jesus, she approached the people who were spreading tear gas into the crowds. She knelt on the ground and she said, you'll have to come through me. Stop shooting our brothers and sisters. Stop spreading tear gas. You'll have to come through me. And as she did this, do you see what happened? A couple of the officers knelt with her. And they had this conversation with her where I don't know what happened, but they're there face to face, considering a different way, perhaps deciding to make a different choice. And as I read about this story, Sister Anna said, I thought it would be better that I die instead of lots of people. And Sister Anna was ready to die that day. Now, luckily, she didn't, but this, this gripped my heart because this, for me, reflects both the power of choice and yet points out the grace that we have as a church as we walk forward together pursuing Jesus as a Jesus people for the sake of the world. I want to put these three words back on the screen again. Conviction, confusion, and counterfeit. And I want you to pick one that's resonated with you. Perhaps because of this story, you're thinking, yeah, I want to make sure that my conviction isn't something that I deeply believe. I want to pursue Jesus with it. I want to be proximate to him. And now is a time when perhaps the Holy Spirit is saying something very specific to you about conviction or tradition or history or something you've always known to be true. And it's being reshaped and transformed in the presence of God this morning. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're going, you know what, I still have questions. I'm confused. Jesus, who are you? How are you showing up? What's your mission like? Is there anyone pursuing you with purity, wholeness, truth? Is there anyone worth following? That's your hands and feet here on the earth. Perhaps you have questions or you know someone else who's wrestling. And perhaps you're tired of the counterfeits. <laughs> You're looking around and you're going, where is the real King Jesus? Spirit lead. We want what's real, not what's fake, not what's of this, of this world. And you feel a weariness in your heart, not just from the past year, but from the counterfeits. In the trial of Jesus, as a result of all these decisions, these choices that were made by the Jewish leaders and by Pilate, it might be easy to really take a posture of being weary and hopeless, but here's where I find hope in this text. I yet hope that in the reality of Jesus' trial, we don't just see questionable, unjust choices made by broken and blinded people. 
In the reality of this world, we don't have to just see questionable, unjust choices made by individuals, systems, and people in power. That's not where the story has to end. We see a king who was falsely accused, and yet by his rightful authority, he judged the hearts of those who were judging him with his proximity, with the reality of his kingdom, and his identity as the true son of God. We see a king who by his very presence was everything the Jewish leaders and Pilate wanted deep down. He was the sacrificial lamb to be celebrated and worshiped. He was the truth, staring Pilate straight in the face. He's everything that these people wanted. He was right there. Church, if you were longing deep down for something, if you're longing for companionship because you're lonely, Jesus is a good companion. If you have questions and you're wrestling with decisions or wisdom or longing for discernment in an area, Jesus, by his spirit, is willing and able to provide it right here. If you're in pain and you're grieving or there's a part of your body that physically hurts even right now, Jesus has been known to be a pretty good healer. And by his spirit, he has not left his church. Even when we reject and turn him over, he chooses to be with us. We see a king who, even when the masses chose to condemn and falsely accuse him, they weren't the only ones who made a choice. Jesus made a choice. He chose the cross scorning its shame and dying to take away the sins of the entire world. And friends, as I look at the injustice and the violence that would follow, therein lies my hope that Jesus made a choice too. Out of love for us. So thanks be to God, his victory does not live or die based on getting our choices right all the time. There is grace. The victory is in even when the world chose to condemn him, he stood trial and he chose you. He chose me. He chose us. He chose the cross to the glory of God the Father. Earlier this week, uh, Troy shared this really beautiful prayer with me. And I want to pray it over us as we bring it to the table and come to the table. It says this, Gracious Father, whose blessed Son Jesus Christ came down from heaven to be the true bread which gives life to the world, evermore give us this bread that he may live in us and we in him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So church, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come Holy Spirit now, as we come to your table, may these elements nourish us and remind us of the work that you chose to do out of love for your people. Nourish us now by this meal, join us together in spirit. We praise you in Christ's name, amen. Friends, we are joined today by brothers and sisters all across the world, some who are meeting in secret, some who cannot proclaim their faith publicly, but who understand Jesus' authority and his power as we understand it, even in his trial. And we get to celebrate this meal, not just with our brothers and sisters in this room or watching online, but for people all over the world. And we proclaim the mystery of Jesus' death, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So church, as you come, there are elements in the middle of the aisles. Receive who you are, the body of Christ.